I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. Today's guest needs no introduction. Dr. Dan Siegel is the professor of psychiatry at UCLA a School of Medicine. He is an internationally acclaimed author and an award-winning educator. Dan also serves as the co-investigator at the Center for Culture, Brain, and Development at UCLA. He is the co-director of the Mindful Awareness Research Center and the executive director of the Mindsight Institute. This is a place where he is devoted to promoting insight, compassion, and empathy in individuals, families, institutions, and communities alike. Unlike me, Dan's books are mega successes. He's been on the New York Times bestsellers list five times with Aware, Mind, A Journey to the Heart of Being Human, Brainstorm, The Power and Purpose of the Teenage Brain, and The Whole Brain Child and No Drama Discipline, which he co-authored with Dr. Tina Payne. Last time I connected with Dan on a Zoom call a few weeks ago, we spoke for a bit more than an hour on the most fascinating spectrum of topics. Every few minutes I would stop him and say, oh my God, I wish we had recorded this for you guys to enjoy it with us. So at the end, we decided to come together again today to do just that. With Dan's wisdom, I'm telling you, you're in for a real treat. Hi there, Mo. Hey, Dan, we meet again. How are you? Yeah, nice to see you. Nice to see you. What time is it on your side? Oh, it's uh, nine o'clock, nine ten. Okay, but you're an early bird. Did I wake you up for this? No, no, it's fine. It's fine. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, so I'll just jump right in. I mean, I was telling everyone how wonderful our conversation last time was and how I was screaming every five minutes saying, we need to record this. We need to record this. We'll see where we go this time. How about that? That's very spontaneous. And it was a beautiful connection last time. And uh, we'll just be present for whatever happens now. There you go. I will, however, try to capture a few of what topics of what we spoke about last time. So I want you to spill the beans. Tell me about that new book we've all been waiting for. Remind me which new book, because I have so many different books. <laughs> Is that true? Okay, that's... Which one were we talking about? So you had written a book a long time ago, and now you're oh, yeah. re-releasing it for your academic side in a very interesting way. So I want to know about that. I think I want everyone to know about so I do write books, and the first book I ever wrote was back in the 90s called The Developing Mind, and it's an academic textbook that I just released its third edition. So that's probably what we were talking about. It was probably the day it was being released. And, you know, when an academic book gets released, there's no hoopla about it. There's uh, no one even remembers. They didn't even remember to send me the books. Uh, there's correct. no advertising of it. There's no uh, announcement of it. It just sort of happens even when there's not a pandemic. And this one I'm particularly excited about because over all these years of writing and working in this field where we combine all the sciences 
into one framework called interpersonal neurobiology. This is kind of the mothership of that field. And now in the third edition with the 18 interns I had working with me for a year to really explore every sentence of the book, try to disprove the ideas of the book, which shocked them. You know, they said, don't you mean prove them? I said, no, 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 just give me one. That's a very interesting way of doing it, actually. Yeah, what do you think of that? First of all, it's very humble. When I wrote Soul for Happy, I put it out on the internet, which is crazy because basically I told people, read it and edit it. And you know how the internet is. So people really thrashed me sometimes. I said, oh, this yeah. is stupid, right? But it was so, so much better for the book itself because eventually after 270 people poked holes through it, what remained after those holes was something that the readers wanted to read, which I think is very clever. But to get your interns to do that, must have been devastating for them. It's like, is he going to fire us other way if we say it's going to save? <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Well, we reviewed thousands and thousands of um, research articles and they would get very excited when they found one that they thought would go against some of the things said in the second edition or the first edition, you know, and uh, it was exciting to finally then work with them for the year and then publish it just last week. And, uh, now this book, since I've written so many books for the general public now, this book, I took the chance of staying really, really steeped in the research. So it's there, but then adding a lot for the reader to really access it with personal reflection and exercises and really appealing to the wholeness of the reader. Whereas before, I got to say in the first edition, for lots of reasons, I was raised in academia. So it was pure science, which was fine. It did its job as a first edition in 1999, but now it's more of a, a synthetic book. So I'm very excited about this third edition. Really, really excited about it. Did the interns find anything wrong? They found uh, two things in a year. They found two things that were maybe a little bit of an overstatement, so we would call them wrong, and we corrected them. One of them was a statement that the right hemisphere had more intense emotions and it was more accurate to say the right hemisphere has more direct input from the body, so it has more raw emotions. Both sides of the brain are emotional, and that was always said, but I, I had a phrase, they're more intense. We couldn't find anything to support that, about intensity of emotion. The second thing was, there's a revision about, it's a long story, but it's about the whole world of something called disorganized attachment when parents are doing things that are terrifying to children, whether it's intentional or unintentional. And the modification there was just an update from the research was that that's a very, very impactful experience that in the earlier editions, and this is really painful to talk about, but I made some statements that really trying to protect parents from being falsely accused of causing something that is in 1% of the population, which is schizophrenia. And so I was pretty adamant about saying, you know, schizophrenia, one of my research mentors showed that um, there are changes in the brain that happen in utero and that it's not due to experience. We know that for sure about autism and likely about bipolar disorder. But in the last few years, a number of studies did come out to show that people with uh, trauma, abuse, basically child abuse, could present, it looks like it's causal, as having psychotic symptoms as a part of schizophrenia. We had to really look carefully at that research because that was a big change to say, you know something, prior editions, we were saying schizophrenia is never caused by what parents do. 
it was an old wrong statement called a double bind. And this is not a double bind, but this is where your experiences are so fragmenting that beyond just the dissociation that we know these experiences cause, there's also psychotic states that fit with the diagnosis of schizophrenia. So that was a big, big change. Do you believe that anything at all is just genetic? So you know this conversation that there are things, I often get the question, but those who are suffering depression are genetically predisposed to have depression or are there any mental health challenges that are just the result of genetics that you're aware of? You know, even if you look at um, some of the high concordance, like for example, schizophrenia, identical twins, we never see a hundred percent concordance with schizophrenia with identical twins. You see maybe fifty percent concordance. What that means is that if your identical twin develops schizophrenia, to use that disorder as an example, you only have a fifty percent chance. Now, in the population, you would have a one percent chance. So that's a fifty times increase. So obviously, there's a genetic Absolutely. component. Although now we have to ask the question about experiential too. But you do have this, it's not 100% concordant. So that would support exactly what you're saying, Mo, that you really want to always ask the question, not is it nature or nurture, but how do they interact? So there's studies even of attachment, my field of research, where you can have genetic variants in certain ways, certain neurotransmitters are metabolized that make it so that if you are traumatized, the response you have is much more intense than let's say a sibling who doesn't have that variation, who's also abused, they're traumatized, and they'll still be negatively infected, but not as intensely. So there's a a support for the notion that you don't say, is it either or, you say, how do they interact? And that's the whole point of the developing mind is to say genetics and experience, which we call nurture, genetics is often called nature, but they're both part of nature, and nurture and nature intertwine throughout the lifespan, actually. Yeah, I think the difference between them is that one is not under control, but within our control. So nurture is something that we can teach parents to improve on. We can sort of detect in cases of trauma and maybe work with and so on and so forth, right? So it's not a hopeless case. You can't just say that if you're in that spectrum of a certain mental health condition, that it was not preventable. It could have been prevented if the conditioning, if the nurture didn't happen, right? Yeah, I think that's a beautiful way of saying it, Mo. I think if we take a pause and just say this, that our mental experience, and let's just define that as your subjective experience of things like your thinking or your emotional life, your inner feelings, the meaning that things have to you, all that we're going to put under the word mind. So we're not contrasting mind to heart, for example, or saying mind is a word for intellect. That's not how we're using the word anything that's within subjective experience that consciousness can allow you to be aware of. That's what we mean by mind. And it turns out that your mind is shaped as much by your relationships and the experience you have with those relationships as it is within your bodily processes, some of which are shaped by genes, some of which, by the way, are shaped by the bacterial composition of your intestines. So one of the leading research edges now, let's say, look at autism. We believe that autism is not caused by what parents do, but rather than just say there's a gene for autism, we're actually looking at how the composition of the bacteria in the gut of the child may be influencing 
the way in fact the brain grows and so the networks that are about the integrative processes in the brain that are involved in autism and that's a complex story we could talk about if you want but but the bottom line is the way those different areas are growing or not in autism looks like it could be related to the kind of bacteria you have and in fact if you have a cesarean section birth a c-section versus vaginal birth changes the composition of bacteria in the gut of the baby. And so what we want to do then, for example, as a simple intervention, is if there is a baby that needs to be born by C-section, which is sterile, whereas if they come out of the vaginal canal, they get some of the secretions from the vagina and the anus that actually, in a healthy way, bring bacteria into the mouth of the baby who otherwise was in a sterile environment. So you can take a child being born by C-section, take a swab from the vagina of the mother, even though the baby's being delivered sterilely without bacteria, and put that swab into the nose and mouth of the baby. That is so incredible. And you may be able to prevent things like autism, for example. But that means so much that we we don't know, right? Like it's tiny, tiny, tiny little interventions in a child's development throughout the early years of a child's life that many of which are even not noticeable that lead to us being one person or another. Exactly. And this is where there's a beautiful book called um, The Angel and the Assassin, which looks at certain small little teeny cells in the brain called microglia, which are really part of the immune system and how it takes part in the brain itself, which we never thought before actually existed, but now we're beginning to learn more about in the last few years. These microglia are influenced directly by the bacteria in the intestine. And so what's called the biome, the microbiome, it's not just bacteria, it's also yeast and other things, but the microbiome of the intestine directly affects the microglia, which directly impact the growth or destruction of regions of the brain. For me, who knows very little about what you know, and mostly from you sharing, but I look at it as a mathematician, if you start to count the number of probabilities, the number of possibilities to mix all of those things together for us to find that state of balance and that state of equanimity, if you want, to be some certain kind of individual that is set to find a path in life is almost infinite. Yeah. Which makes it so interesting because then maybe the answer is not in the, in the configuration that leads us to the trauma, which could be so difficult to detect. It could be in the actions that we do post-trauma. You know, psychology and psychiatry, sometimes they try to go back to what caused the problem so that they can fix it. But sometimes, you know, as an engineer, I would ask myself, why do I need to know what broke the radiator? I could just simply fix the radiator. Does that apply at all in your field of study, Dan? Well, Mo, the thing about uh, when you say my field of study (laughs) is um, I started in biochemistry looking for enzymes as a college student for why salmon could go from freshwater to saltwater and survive. I love love mathematics, by the way, so we'll come to that in a moment. Oh, I know that about you. (laughs) And, uh, you know, but then I worked on a suicide prevention service. So my training was in how to tune into the subjective experience of a caller in a suicidal crisis. And the way you tuned in to that caller's inner subjective life oh. could make a difference in whether they lived or died right there on the phone, holding a gun to their head. That's amazing. So I was 19 at the time. And as an adolescent, it was like, wow, 
even though I was during the day searching for this enzyme that let a salmon survive, at night I was listening to emotional subjective experience to allow a human to survive. And then I thought, wow, it was, there must be something that connected an enzyme and the enzymatic reactions. I was a biochemistry major and emotion. So I went to medical school thinking that medicine would be the great combination of subjective honoring of the journey of a patient and the meaning of the illness for them and how we as healers could really tune into that and the biochemistry and physiology of the body and all that stuff. So I went to medical school and it's so funny, Mo, because I just got a couple of days ago letters from the period when I dropped out of school from my ex-girlfriend who just emailed me and said, I kept all your letters from when you were 22. Do you want them? No way. And, and so I, I literally have them right to my left arm here. And she wants them back. <laughs> Not she. <laughs> so take out the ones that can incriminate you or, you know, put your... <laughs> <laughs> well, that would be a whole nother thing to talk about. But the bottom line is that period of life, which I wrote about in a book called Mind, was so painful because the professors I had in medical school, I was at a research institution, and they were really good at what you could call physical sight, looking at the physical aspect of enzymes and physiological systems and stuff like that. And they were teaching us to make diagnoses. So when you say my field, the first field I'm trained in is biochemistry. The next field I'm trained in is medicine. And where I went to school, the subjective life of the patient and of the student, by the way, back then was invisible to the eye of the teacher. And I ultimately dropped out and I have these letters that literally I've just been reading line by line very carefully to say, what was this 22 year old thinking when he dropped out of school? Yeah. And it was so painful to read it because at first I thought I was nuts. Like there's something wrong with me. I must be just too young to be here. You know, I was a very young medical student and uh, maybe I need to do this and that. And then I was with my girlfriend for a while and then I decided to go back to school and then there are the letters I've just started reading afterwards where I, this one letter I just read, which says, you know, maybe there's not something wrong with me. Maybe there's something wrong with the system called medicine. And maybe I should, instead of dropping out of medicine, maybe I should see if I can change the way the system works. And it was like, yeah, I mean, I'm reading this and I'm going, who is this guy? You know, this 22, <laughs> but then I was 23. And so what I say to you here is that when I went into pediatrics after medical school and psychiatry, if you ask me about my field, the field, unfortunately, was a very brain-based field that said, if there's something wrong with your mind, like your mood or your thinking or your behavior, all those are related to mind. And psychiatry is division of medicine that takes the mind, the psyche even though no one told us what the mind was, then there's something wrong with your brain. And by the way, the brain is a bunch of chemicals. So the best way to deal with the brain is give it a pill. And there was a lot of money behind that philosophy. And it just felt wrong. So like, just like in medicine, that field I was trained in, it felt wrong. And at first I thought I must be disturbed or there was something wrong with me. And then I realized there was something wrong with the system. I got to say, when I did psychiatry, that field, it started feeling wrong again. And my wife at the time reminded me when I thought about dropping out of it, you don't need to change yourself. You can actually try to change the system of the mental health field. So for the last, I guess now it's 30 years, what I've been trying to do was say to the field of mental health and then related fields like education or parenting, that the word mind is not a synonym for the brain. Totally. Even though Hippocrates said it was. 
and he may have been wrong or partially right. And then William James, the grandfather of modern psychology, he reaffirmed that. And he may have been just saying a partial truth. So it's been uh, quite a battle these last 30 years to say, if the mind isn't just a synonym for brain activity, what is it? Yes, what is it? And that, we can talk about that. So no, no, hold on, hold on. Let's leave them all with a minute of suspension here. A lot of suspense. We're going to talk about what the mind is. What is it then? What is the mind, seriously? Seriously? Yeah. Yeah, so we sit with the suspense, and let's start with the statistics, because I know you're a mathematician, and I love math too. So I was just curious about it, because I said, well, I was trained, you know, in a fancy medical school, in a fancy psychiatry program, and no one ever said what the mind was. So even though I was going into a division of medicine that specialized in the mind, no one ever said what it was. So then I thought, okay, maybe my colleagues, I was trained as a psychological researcher and attachment research. I said, maybe they know. Nope. So I gathered 40 of them together in 1992, the beginning of the decade of the brain, 40 academics. And I said, well, what is the mind? And nobody had a definition of it. Definition, yeah. Short of its brain activity which is just a cop-out, right? So, but it's what usually is said. So then we said, okay, well, the anthropologist in the room said the mind is not within you, it's between you. And a linguistics expert said the same thing. Sociologist said, absolutely, it's between us. What do you mean between you? What is between Like in you? culture, like right now, yes, between yes, you yes, and yes, Mimo, yes. they would say, a linguistic person would say, the language you use that comes from you to me and everyone listening creates mind in the betweenness. So some cognitive mm. people would say it's embedded in culture or it's extended, right? Whereas a neuroscientist in the room, and this literally happened like this, would say that is ridiculous, she would say, or he would say, the mind is obviously brain activity. We've proven that. And why are you trying to disprove what we've already proven? And I would go, well, here we are, 40 of us in the room. The anthropologists, linguists, and sociologists don't agree with you. And they are very thoughtful people. And the neuroscientists who, in those days, the beginning of the decade of the brain, they had all this oomph, you know, I'm a neuroscientist or I'm a psychiatrist studying this aspect of the brain. They could pull this kind of psychological trump card, you know, and say, no, it's obvious it's just the brain. And so I said, well, what would it be if it could be both? And they agreed to come one more time. That was the first meeting. So I went for a walk. And I'll ask you, Mo, to think about this and all of people listening to us to think about this. I'm walking on the beach and I'm going, what if the anthropologists are correct and the sociologists and linguists are correct? Mind is between. And what if the neuroscientists are also correct? That the mind is within. So what if they're both correct, even though they don't agree with each other and they don't even like each other? And there was unbelievable disrespect and animosity in the room. And I was the one who invited them to the party and I'm gonna go back to the party one more time. And I thought, is there something that could be both within and between that maybe, just maybe, even though they don't think this way, they could say, well, yeah. So I'm walking along the beach. And I'm thinking, what, what's within in terms of like your emotions? And I'm thinking about my suicide prevention service, that emotions were happening in the caller, but they were also happening in the phone line between us. And the way I tuned in as a listener or not was a betweenness, right? But the struggle of the isolation of the person in a suicide crisis was within. 
right? And maybe they were isolated from the between. Oh, that's so, so beautiful. Right? So you can this is see like, it, yeah? right? You can see it, you can feel it. And it was missing in medical school. That's why I dropped out. And when I came back, I noticed it didn't change. But I noticed that the physician professors who didn't have this capacity to kind of do both the within and between, whatever that stuff is, had patients who didn't do so well. So I'm going for a walk on the beach. And the first thing that happened was I looked out at the waves and I thought, they're crashing on the shore and I love the coast. And what if someone like forced me in academia to say, Dan, you want to be in academics, which in that, those days I did. And I said, yes, I do. And they say, you have to study the water or the sand. And I go, well, actually, I don't want to choose between the water or the sand. I want to study the coast. You can't have a coast unless you have both. And the mentor would say, nope, that's not how a university works. Pick the water, become a waterologist or a sandologist, you know? <laughs> and I go, I don't want to be a waterologist or a sand. I want to study the coast. The coast requires. So I'm walking along the beach and I'm looking at the waves. And you know how like a wave could be 100 yards out and then 50 yards out and then 20 yards and then 10 yards and five yards and then it crashes at your feet. So I'm thinking, this is so interesting. The waves keep on coming and going, what are waves? And I go, well, waves are kind of like energy. And I'm thinking about physics and the study of the wave aspect of electrons and stuff and probability fields and all that stuff. But I put that aside for a moment. We'll come back to that in just a second. Absolutely. But then I'm going, what's actually crashing at my feet? Is it the matter that I see 100 yards from now? And I go, no. It has the surface appearance like it's the same water. But actually what's traveling in a wave is the energy that push the molecules up and down and up and down. And what I feel on my feet is the energy that yes, was out at a hundred yards, but it's not the molecule that was added a hundred yards. That's correct. Absolutely. So then mm -hmm. I go, Oh, interesting. So you can have the appearance on the surface of something seeming to be one way, but when you really get down to the deeper mechanism, it's another way. So then I'm going, well, what would be beneath the surface of what these scientists are saying? When they say mind is between, yeah, yeah, yeah. Mind is within, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and they're both so convinced, beautiful people devoting their lives to this entire careers. So I said, But to a hammer, everything is a nail. So, you well, know, exactly. if you're a waterologist, everything to you is water. Everything's water. So I go, I want to study the coast. I want to see both. So I go, Oh my God, that's it. It's energy. Energy is what a neuroscientist studies in the brain, it's electrochemical energy. That's true. Even my teacher, David Hubel, won the Nobel Prize, my teacher of neuroscience, you know, for studying how energy patterns being stimulating the developing brain would change the structure of the brain a certain way. So I, I thought he did, David didn't use the word energy, but we could use the word energy. And then what happens in our linguistic communication or the relating groups or even culture is about energy flow that has symbolic value called information. So it was energy and information. So I said, oh my God, well, what's the kind of system we would be talking about here? And then I went to these math books about systems and particularly looking at probability theory and math and then systems theory and particularly complexity theory. And the systems that are capable of being chaotic, that are open to influences from outside themselves and that are nonlinear, meaning a small input leads to a large and difficult to predict on the surface result. So chaos-capable, open, nonlinear systems are called complex systems. And they have something called, in our universe, emergent properties. 
So then after I'm reading this book before the next meeting, I said, what if the mind were an emergent property of energy flow that sometimes has symbolic value? So let's just use energy and information because I know some physicists say information is primary. Some physicists say energy is primary. So let's just say energy and information that changes, call it flow. This flow is happening in the brain for sure. It happens in the whole body and it's happening between. So skull nor skin are barriers for that flow. Totally not, yeah. So then I said, what if it's an emergent property of the complex system of energy and information flow? And what if one facet of the mind beyond the usual information processing, which includes emotions or consciousness even, or subjective experience, we'll put those aside for now, those three facets, subjective experience, consciousness, information processing. What if there's a fourth facet that would be one of the emergent properties of a complex system, which is the self-organizing emergent. In this case, it would be both fully embodied, not just in skull, and would be fully relational, your connections with people on the planet. What if it's the self-organizing emergent process that's regulating energy and information flow? And so I started playing around with that. And looking at the math, it suggested that when the system is optimally self-organizing, what says it maximizes or complexity, it's doing that by differentiating and linking aspects of the system to create this kind of harmony. And when I read the qualities of flexibility, adaptability, the mathematical quality of coherence, energizes stable, those five qualities from a math book, you rearrange it, it comes out and spells the word faces. I said, wow, maybe optimal mental health comes with the process of linking differentiated parts. I talked to some mathematicians later on, they didn't have a name for that. So I said, let's call it integration. The mathematicians weren't happy with that because in math, integration means addition, but that's not what I mean here. It's just you honor differences and don't lose the differences and make the linkages. So there's a synergy there. Anyway, the bottom line of all that was I come back to the group and I talked to them about this definition. I said, how would you feel if we all tried to embrace as a working definition, we can get rid of it next week, but just a way today to say that the mind can be defined, this one facet of it as the emergent, self-organizing, embodied and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. And one by one, 40 academics, 100% agreed. They didn't think that way before, but they're willing to try it on. And we went to meet regularly for four and a half years. And that's where interpersonal neurobiology was born in 1992. And what it taught me was that everyone has something to bring to the table. And if you can find a common ground, what E.O. Wilson would later write in a book called Consilience, I wish we had the term back then, but he didn't write the book yet. Consilience is where you say, people are coming to understand reality in different ways, but is there a common ground that they're discovering independently? So this would be then a consilient approach, we say that now. And it turns out that when the system is optimally organizing itself, it has this faces flow of harmony, but when it isn't doing that, it goes to either chaos or rigidity, that's straight out of the math of complex systems. Totally. And it turns out every symptom of every syndrome, without an exception, in the diagnostic Bible of mental disorders is either chaotic- it's Either chaos or rigidity. Or, or, or rigidity, and no one was talking about that. And so I started writing about that in 1992. Give me that definition again before we continue. It is the emergent- Emergent, self-organizing, embodied and relational process. So it's both in the whole body, not just your head, and it's in your relationships with people on the planet, not just within your skin encased body. So it's embodied and relational. 
And it's regulating, this one facet of it, is regulating the flow of energy and information. That's it. Isn't this what we know in quantum physics as well? Isn't the idea of being two things at the same time, you know, being embodied, but being relational? Like you explained the waves being energy, but also being a molecule, at least at the beginning when you saw it. Isn't that what it's all about? That we should embrace both at the same time. Mo, I think that's a beautiful way of saying it. And I'll tell you, because I get kind of teary when you say that, because you're really embracing the idea that things on the surface, you want them to be one or the other, but a deeper view says you, both. you embrace them, right? Even paradoxes you embrace, and that's kind of the nature of integration. But I'll give you one little example. If integration was the basis of health and it looked like consciousness was another consilient finding was needed for change. So those are two ideas. When I put them together with my patients and said, let's integrate, meaning honor differences, promote linkages, that's how we're defining integration here. Let's integrate consciousness. They would go, what are you talking about? And I would bring them around this table that had a center glass part and a outer wooden rim. And I would say, well, consciousness could be differentiated as if I say, good morning, Mo, you have both the knowing of that called awareness or consciousness, and you have the, the sound, good morning. That would be different from good afternoon or good evening, but still sound. And those knowns, we would put on the rim of this, no one wanted to call it a table of awareness, but we call it a wheel of awareness. And I wanted to get into that. Yes, the wheel of awareness. Well, this is where the thinking deeply about the mathematics of the mind and making a proposal, which amazingly, if you look at the math, 100,000 mental health professionals, about 95 to 98% never been told what the mental is of their profession, mental health. Same thing for the health part. And educators, same thing. 20,000 educators have asked, same thing. Way over 95% never told what it is that they're educating the mind. So it's been amazing these last 30 years because since that definition was proposed in 1992, and this is where the developing mind is so fascinating was the proposal is the mind is in these four facets, subjective experience, consciousness, information processing, and this fourth facet we've just defined as this self-organizing emergent process that's regulating energy information flow. Then you can say with that fourth facet, what a healthy mind is, a healthy mind is a mind that creates integration within and between. And that was a proposal in 92. And then I started doing this wheel of awareness with my patients in the office. And amazingly, mild to moderate depression would get better. Trauma would be helped a lot. Anxiety disorders, people who sadly had gotten a diagnosis where they were facing death, a terminal illness, and were freaking out about dying, they got peace by that, that we can talk about in a moment. Totally. And I just was so basically freaked out that this simple wheel practice. But it's really, it's quite interesting. So you say there are eight senses. So five of them, the five basic senses we're aware of. Yeah. Talk us through the sixth, seventh, and eighth. So if you just picture this circle around the outside of a wheel, the center being the hub, the rim on the outside, the first segment would be the first five senses you're talking about, which parenthetically are energy patterns outside the body. Totally. We should absolutely understand that. I know. And vision is just waves, photons of light hitting your retina, right? It's exactly. As simple as that. Hmm? And sound or the sound waves. I told the 18 interns, I said, we need friends. Find anybody who's talking about the mind who talks about energy flow like this. They found no one. 
it was so lonely, except the 18 of us is why I need them because I'm so lonely. So it was like, okay, we still couldn't find anyone, even though I've been writing about this for 30 years. So except for my students, this is not the way people talk. So the first thing is the first five senses, energy patterns from outside your skin and case body, fine. In science, we've used the term sixth sense, actually, for what's called intero, for interior, perception, for perception. It's our awareness of the sensations of the body, muscles. Inside. Inside. And basically, energy patterns from muscles, bones, genitals, and organs like your intestines, your heart, your respiratory system. It's magisterial, but it's not magic. When I've used the word energy, I've had chair people of departments of psychiatry and psychology yell at me. I said, why are you yelling at me? They said, because you're using the energy term. I said, why does that get you to yell at me with all that energy? And they say, because energy is not a scientific concept. And I stop and I look at them and I go, there's a lot of energy behind you saying that energy is not a scientific concept. I said, (laughs) and then I'll look at them and I'll say, is physics a branch of science? And they go, what do you mean? I'll say, well, physics studies energy. And energy is real. And then they look at me and they go, why would you bring physics or math into understanding the mind? And I go, why wouldn't you? I'll be open about this because I sometimes push back on the idea of using energy in the spiritual talk, right? So the way you're positioning energy is truly the building block of everything that is physical. And accordingly, if we were to be a little bit more imaginative, it could be also the building block of things we can't measure physically, right? And that's the idea of where consciousness might come in that form of energy. But sometimes the spiritual people, you know, it's like, ah, you know, I like his energy. And that stuff doesn't really have a scientific basis to it. Right. I hear you. And we want to be empathic and compassionate to people pushing back. Absolutely. And so I'm with you all the way. So when we're using the word energy here, let's say for the sixth sense, look, I'm trained as a scientist. I love science, but I don't like scientism where people make it a a belief system. But science, even more than scientists, is a discipline that challenges its own beliefs, that challenges its own approaches. And the only way it can have integrity is to constantly be humble and be attacking its own presuppositions, right? Totally. So in this view, we're saying that the sixth sense on the rim is literally energy patterns, electrochemical energy patterns coming from within the skin encased body. Now, I don't know how to be more scientific than that, but that's how the body works. I'm a physician and we never use the word energy ever, but that's what we were studying. Then the seventh sense, what would that be? So we go from the second segment of the rim, you explore that with this spoke of attention and attention, by the way, can be understood as how you direct energy and information flow. And you can look at all the studies of attention, even though they never use that way of thinking about it. That's so cool. That's the way it works. And I say where attention goes, neural firing, which is electrochemical energy, flows, and neural connection grows. That's it. That's it. That's the whole thing. That's neuroplasticity. You get energy to flow through a certain path often, and then that path develops, becomes more conductive, if you want. Exactly. And what does that? The mind. The mind changes the structure of the brain by how it controls, regulates, which means monitors and modifies energy and information flow. That's it. So seventh sense is awareness of what creates our thoughts, what happens inside. Yeah. So thoughts would be one. Emotions, believe it or not, are constructed. Of course. These are yeah. mental constructions or we call the mental activities. So if you will, and this is fascinating because we're born in bodies, but if you will, the first two segments of the rim are 
pure conduits, if you will, like a hose of energy that flows through the body for the sixth sense or from outside the body into your receptor. So at some level, you're translating light with your eyes. So it's some kind of translation, but it's as pure as you can get because we live in a body. Before we go to the eighth sense, I want to remind our listeners of a few things and in favor of time. So I want to finish with the eighth, but let's finish the seventh. Okay. So the seventh sense would be mental activities. These are mental constructions, probably dominant in your head, meaning the spiderweb-like connections in the brain and the head do construct thought and memory and emotion and all sorts of fantastic things. The brain is a fundamental part of the mind. We're not saying it's separate, but we're saying the mind is broader than the brain and bigger than the body. Let's stop here for a second. So if you guys are still here, that means you're enjoying this as much as I am. So do me a favor. I'm out there to make a billion people happy. I think you need to play a part. Please teach others what you've learned. Encourage them to join us too. Share slow-mo on social media. These are small actions on your side, but they have a far-reaching impact and they can get thousands more to find their path to happiness by listening to conversations like this. Make it a point to join me every Monday and Thursday. There will be more conversations like this with some of my wisest, wisest friends. So then the eighth is the one that intrigues me most because it's not even within us anymore. Your eighth sense is that interconnectedness, you called it which I have to admit to you, in science, would be considered a bit voodoo or spiritual talk. Well, that's so interesting. Let's talk about that phrase, voodoo or spiritual talk. So this is great, Mo, because in science, we have two ways we should talk about how scientists are trained to think. One would be as basically linear thinkers, in which case the term interconnection would be voodoo and thought to be soft and not real. And even scientists trained in a linear way might look at the word emergent, as I've seen some scientists state, roll their eyes if you're in person with them, or if they're in writing, they would say, it's not even wrong. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) I've got that sometimes. However, if you're what's called a systems scientist, and I work with two at MIT, which is a science place, right? And systems ways of thinking, whether you're a biologist or a sociologist or a family therapist or whatever you're doing with your systems work, interconnection is a word that we use for the fact that the components of a system have huge impacts on each other. And even in medicine, if you look at the work by Christakis and Fowler called Connected, it's a very, very rigorous, mathematically based scientific statement about the reality of interconnection for humanity. Of course. But a linear scientist will call it voodoo and they'll roll their eyes, insult you. And so what you want to do is be empathic for that, those statements and say, I see, if you were trained to be a hammer, all you're going to do is see everything as a nail. And when you see somebody screwing in a screw, you go, that's not possible. Why aren't you (laughs) banging on that thing? (laughs) Exactly. Because I'm actually a screwdriver and I know how to actually put things together with a screw, not a nail. So system science shows the reality of interconnection. I think the pandemic is demonstrating that. We have a community, you know, which I invite all your members to participate in, where we're saying the personal experience of the planetary pandemics, we call PEP, is revealing the reality of interconnection. And let's go from just 
the experience of the pandemic to the personal exploration of planetary possibility. Mm. And we do this wheel of awareness. So you explore the eighth sense, but in the wheel practice, you actually take that spoke and bend it around into the hub. And I'm not sure how much clock time you and I have, but since you're a mathematician, I am so excited if we can talk about what the hub talk about anything in. time doesn't matter time is an illusion oh, okay so okay let's good. go for it <laughs> i thought we were at, like some kind of closing segment with your reminders to your we want to close because they told me they told me that the new generation doesn't want us to sit and listen to a podcast more than 40 minutes but i think they will today okay and maybe you can make it part a and part b let's do that then so yeah we've decided to split this conversation into part a and part b Come and join us to enjoy an incredible conversation that goes all the way to G-O-D and death. If you've enjoyed this conversation with Dan, please join our pep talks and pep conversations for how we can build a better planet together. They are on drdansiegel.com. And also, I would strongly recommend that you follow Dan's work and read Aware, one of my favorite books of all time. And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mo Gaudet, Slow Mo, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.